Good morning, everybody. Improving your serve. That's the series that we embarked on a couple weeks ago. And we heard from Jesus that if any one of you wants to be great, must become the servant of all. And then he modeled it for us and for believers of all ages, which we looked at last week from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, in which he picked up a towel and a basin, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Well, this weekend, I want us to hear some advice from an inmate. I thought about that this week, and I thought, wow, really? From an inmate? I mean, inmates have been in the news a lot lately. There's the inmates at Gitmo. Not near as many as there were. There's still some down there. There's Bradley or Chelsea Manning, who had his sentence commuted recently. He won't serve as long, but he's an inmate now. And then there's the notorious drug kingpin, El Chapo, who was just extradited from Mexico to the U.S. to stand trial. And uh, he's escaped twice, but he's still an inmate. And I thought, I'd be hesitant to ask for counsel from a lot of inmates. But I've known some over the years. I visited a number of inmates in prisons and jails that really had something decent to share, some wisdom that they had gleaned along the way. Then I've thought of some that, that we've all benefited from if we've listened to their words. Maybe Nelson Mandela, who was for 27 years a prisoner in South Africa because he stood against apartheid. 27 years by his government. Or there's Chuck Colson, whom I referenced and quoted in my bulletin article on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, uh, and his wisdom. He was part of the Watergate conspiracy, uh, busted in the days of President Nixon, went to prison for 19 months, but was converted on his way to prison, and boy, did he have wisdom to share after that experience uh, through his writings and his speeches, uh, amazing amount of wisdom. And then last weekend, we considered some wisdom from Dr. Martin Luther King, and in particular, his letter from a Birmingham jail. And so we can learn a lot, and we're wise to heed the wisdom of some who've been inmates, but none more so than the Apostle Paul, who at the time of his writing of the letter to the Philippian church and a couple of other churches, he was a prisoner in Rome, in chains because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. He has great wisdom. Well, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But uh, when he's in prison, he weighs in on this concept of serving. And the amazing thing to me is that when you read this Philippian letter, I mean, it's kind of not what you'd expect. He's not languishing there in that prison, consumed with self-pity. In fact, on the contrary, he's filled with joy. And this letter to this church is laced with joy from that prison cell. In fact, um, he would tell us that serving is at the heart of the gospel. And I really believe that that tells us a lot about whether an inmate has something worth sharing with us or not. What's their heart captured by? If they're still consumed by the thought that I shouldn't be in here, I should be free, if that's their greatest desire, they may not have much to share. But if something beyond themselves has captured their heart, 
then they may have some great wisdom, as some that I've referenced. And certainly that's true with the Apostle Paul, because there's no question his heart had been held captive by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in just a moment. I want to share, have him share three pieces of advice that we're going to glean from this inmate. They're reflected in the outline in your bulletin. And here, here's the first. When the gospel captures your heart, you'll joyfully serve no matter your situation. That's what we see. And I want you to notice in four quick passages here how the gospel really drives everything that this inmate thinks about and expresses. Here it is in the opening verses of Philippians. He said to these believers, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. It could have been about him. Pray for me. I'm in prison. I need help. No, he's praying for them. He's thankful for them because of their participation with him in the gospel, which is central to him. Then he shares how he's grateful for the gospel, what it does for the believers in Philippi and in Kaimuki. Here's what he says in verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And that's what the gospel does for us. It brings the love of God and the grace that he imparts to us into our hearts. And that binds us together uh, with all believers everywhere. Now, the growth of the gospel. Verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Amazing. He's excited that his imprisonment, his circumstances, have furthered the gospel of Jesus Christ. The guards around him are hearing. Some are getting converted. I mean, the brethren outside are sharing the gospel more boldly, inspired by this inmate in there, and it's about the gospel. And then he says this. Here's a request in light of the gospel. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. When the gospel captures the heart of a community of faith, they hang together, they strive together for that one purpose with that in mind, to proclaim the gospel. Now, it's obvious that the gospel had just claimed Paul's heart. It was all about the gospel. And that is what drove him and caused him to serve with joy, even in his particular situation. 
And that's the way it needs to be for us, no matter our present circumstance, no matter our situation, but it depends. If the gospel is just a story to us, it really won't affect us. Our feelings will take precedence. But if the gospel is the truth to us that has gripped our hearts so that we know that Christ had to leave glory to come here to die for sinful people and we're convicted of our sin, then the gospel brings us to our knees and breaks our hearts, filling us with remorse for our sin. But then it overwhelms us with joy at the realization that we've been forgiven and we've been given the promise of his presence for all of eternity. That's the gospel that changes and transforms us. And if it does, in the process, folks, there's a transformation or a transfer of power. Before, who was in control? We were. We did what we wanted to do and when we wanted to do it. We were in charge of our lives. It was all about us and our agenda. I thought about that this week as I saw the transfer of power in Washington, D.C. As one president turned the reins over to an incoming president, one party to another, and it was a peaceful transference of power. In fact, there was, I saw the speech of President Trump, and then I saw something that actually brought tears to my eyes. And that's when Vice Presidents Biden and uh, Pence came down those steps side by side, and then Presidents Obama and Trump walked down side by side. And I thought, that's amazing. That really is still amazing. That, well, in not all that many countries do you have that kind of a peaceful transfer of power. But that's how it was set up in the beginning. And it's working. And that's wonderful. Now, there were protests. There were protests that day. There were protests yesterday. And that's people's right to protest. And however you feel about the rightness or the wrongness of the issues that were represented in that protest, I thought, well, when it comes to our surrender of power to Christ, uh, that transfer of power is met with protest also. It is. When we first come to Christ, I mean, there's a struggle, isn't there? Do I really want to surrender to his authority in my life? And I don't know about you, but for me, it's a daily protest. My flesh screams against serving others when I want to do my own thing. And uh, it's, it's a decision. But you know what? When the gospel captures our hearts, we'll gladly do so and serve joyfully our spouses, our parents, our children, our families, and the people around us because it's about the gospel. Secondly, when the gospel captures your heart, you'll think of yourself less and more of others. Now, notice I didn't say you'll think less of yourself because we, we don't need to as believers. We know who we are. We're children of the king. We're saints, amazingly, declared so by the righteousness of Christ. Last week when we read in John chapter 13, it said, Jesus... Knowing who he was, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from the Father and was going back to the Father, rose, stripped to the garb of a slave, 
and washed his disciples' feet. He knew who he was, and that's what freed him to serve. So we don't need to think less of ourselves, but if we're truly a servant, we'll think of ourselves less and more of the needs of the people around us. That was illustrated to me recently when I heard an interview on Focus on the Family radio broadcast with Johnny Erickson Tata. How many of you, that's a familiar name. For those of you who don't really know who she is, when she was 17 years old, vibrant young woman, she had a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic. Like any 17-year-old would, she was plunged into darkness, uh, anger, depression. But after some months as a believer in Christ, she began to see life from a new perspective. And she went on in just a few years to become an amazing author, authoring some incredible Christian books, which she has continued to do. She became a Christian singer. She paints beautifully, holding a brush in her teeth to do so. She's become known as an advocate in particular for people with disabilities. She has a ministry called Wheels for the World. And in fact, has partnered with one of our missionaries in Jordan to bring in hundreds of wheelchairs for people in developing nations so that now they can actually get around. In that interview, she told that one day in her office, she received a phone call from an elder in a small church in Pennsylvania. And he said, Johnny, there's a young woman in our church. She's in her mid-20s. Her name's Kim. And she could use some encouragement. She has Lou Gehrig's disease at this young age. And she was in a wheelchair, but now she's bedridden on a feeding tube. And she's wondering if life is worth living. I wonder if you'd call her. Johnny said, yeah, I, I sure will. And so she called and reached Kim's mother. And Kim's mother said, you know, my daughter has some tough choices ahead of her. I'm so glad you called. So she put the phone on the pillow next to her daughter, Kim, and Johnny began to talk to her. But Johnny said in that interview that it was kind of a one-sided conversation for quite a while. Kim was having trouble breathing, and she couldn't hear Kim all that well. And then she heard Kim very clearly say, Johnny, I love Jesus, and I, I love my family, and I love my church family, and, and, and I want to do the right thing. But they want to put me on a respirator. I'm not sure I want to do that. And I want you to tell me, you think I ought to do that, or should I say no? Johnny said, well, that's a complex question. There's no easy answer for those kinds of questions. You don't have the, the intimacy with a family doctor that you used to have in our society. But what you need to do, Kim, is pray and ask the Lord to give you his direction. No pat answers or formulas, but God tailor makes his advice for people. And so you really need to listen to him when you make this decision. And with the confidence of your uh, doctor, you need to involve your parents, pastor, family and friends, and then just make your best decision. She said, but one thing you need to know is if people tell you it's your body, you can do with it what you want, you know that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. 
And she said, and Kim, maybe there's a better way. She said, what do you mean by that? Johnny said, well, there's a verse in the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that says, don't let it escape your notice that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. She said, we often think and understand that that means, oh, to the Lord, a thousand years is like one day. But we miss the flip side of that. And that is, one day for us here is like a thousand days in eternity. It'll echo through eternity for that long. In fact, here's specifically what she said. She said, um, each day is chock full of opportunities to invest in 1,000 years worth of eternity. A day here is like a thousand years there. God gives you a 24-hour slice of time in which your investments will have eternal repercussions. And Kim said, but Johnny, I'm bedridden. I'm paralyzed. I can't do anything. And Johnny said, no, but you can, Kim. In that same letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Peter says, For this reason also add to your faith all these things, uh, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, you will be both useful and fruitful to the Lord. And one day, you'll be welcomed into his kingdom with a rich welcome. Kim, you can grow your soul every day, even there in bed. In fact, she said, think of it. Today, when your mom brings you lunch in that plastic bag, and she's going to hook it up and hang it on that pole and plunge that thing in, why don't you just say, Mom, thanks. That tastes great. She said, we chuckled about that. And then she said, I know you pray before your meals. Do you pray at that time? You can say a prayer of thanks to the Lord. And here's the thing, Kim. And she said, forgive me for being blunt. We may not see each other this side of heaven. But Kim, you need to take your focus off yourself just for a moment and put it on your mom. Do something to lighten her load, to lighten her heart. Add to your faith goodness. And you'll find in those choices, you'll find life is worth living. Johnny went on to say in this interview, you should know that she passed away a month and a half after we talked. But oh, those were some of the best days that girl ever lived, her mother told me. Forty-five days, short to some, but to Kim, she looked at them as, though God, as God looked at them. She kept giving those smiles. She wrote notes of encouragement with her mother holding the pen and notepad be, be by her bedside. She realized that talking on the phone really was possible, and so she had her mother dial the phone and often put it under her ear, pressed against the pillow. More friends came by from the church to glean her encouragement. Her life continued to have influence. She pressed influence for the Lord Jesus on all who came by. And then Johnny said, you don't have to have Lou Gehrig's disease to apply your heart to this kind of wisdom. Wow, it's really true. When the gospel captures our hearts, we can serve with joy no matter our situation. 
and we will think less, well, of ourselves less and more of others. And then one more piece of advice from this inmate. When the gospel captures your heart, you'll see serving not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. Paul turns a corner now in his letter, and he uses an illustration. But the best illustration he could think of was Jesus himself. When he wrote, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Attitude's everything. We hear that. There's no greater attitude than the one that characterized Jesus when he was in human flesh. He existed in the form of God. But it says he emptied himself, taking on the likeness of a slave. Bondservant. That's what a bondservant was. And here's the thing about that. I mean, he emptied himself so that he could do so. What did he empty himself of? Scholars have debated that. This is a famous passage. I mean, they've written volumes on this. It's the great kenosis in the Greek language or the emptying. Did he empty himself of his omniscience, knowing everything, his omnipresence, or his omnipotence? Yeah, certainly some of that, but certainly we know that he emptied himself of his glory and his majesty, but the emphasis is on what he became and what he did. And that's what Paul goes on to say here. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his humanity, he was obedient to his father and went all the way even to death on a cross. Paul singles that out because his audience in the first century would have understood. That's the worst it gets. Not only was the cross reserved for slaves and foreigners, it was the worst kind of torture that had been invented by man. I mean, the Phoenicians and the Persians had perfected that suffering and elongated it so that it would be just horrific. But Jesus went all the way to death on the cross. But there was a result of that. And he goes on to say, For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's point is this to believers. We've been called to humbly serve and we should do so with joy knowing that in God's timing, he'll lift us up. It's going to be difficult. It will be challenging. It'll be hurtful. And some believers will go to their death serving and die because of that. But God is faithful, and he will lift us up at the proper time. I thought about... uh, an interview or a book recently that was written that I think illustrates uh, what Christ did here in our own nation by an earlier president. The author is Eric Metaxas, 
And he's written several excellent books. One of them is Bonhoeffer. Another one is Seven Great Women. And then he wrote a book called Seven Great Men. And one of those great men that he writes about in that book is George Washington, our first president. And Metaxas says, when I was going to school, I mean, it wasn't really popular to say much about George Washington in a positive way. Earlier generations heard he was the founder of our nation, that he was a great man, but it had become politically incorrect to say that about him when I was a kid in school. But the more I studied about him, the more I learned what a great man he was. For instance, I mean, he was the general, he was the commander of the Continental Army uh, in the Revolutionary War that stood against the greatest power in the world at that time, Great Britain, and he was amazing as a general. I personally have read some books about that. One of them is uh, George Washington's War. He was brilliant. Historians have concluded that he was indispensable, that he alone, if he'd been extracted from that whole situation, we probably would have lost the war. But he was used in an amazing way to lead that ragtag army to victory over the British. In 1783, they had just won a major victory over the British. They were about one month away from the cessation of hostilities, and he and his officers were in upstate New York. And one night, he wasn't with his officers, and they were talking, and they were grumbling. They were upset. They had not been paid by Congress for some time. And they were thinking about rebelling. And they said, you know, this is ridiculous. This is an outrage. Those goofballs in Congress, they didn't win this war. We won this war. They said, let's threaten Congress that if they don't pay us, we're just going to back off and let the British win this war. They said, but we won't do it. But if they don't pay us, then let's stage a military coup. We can take over this country at this point, and we will install our commander, George Washington, as our first monarch. He'll be the first king of the United States. Washington got wind of these <laughs> discussions and rumors, and he was outraged. And he called them together, and he gave them a speech. And he said to them, I've been fighting for liberty. We've been trying to make possible a new form of government for everyone here and for the whole world eventually. Not only do I reject this, but I rebuke all of you for even giving this a moment's thought. He shamed them. He went on in this speech and he got emotional. And they realized they were in the presence of a great man. A godly man. I mean, they had thought about offering him a position of authority that would have unlimited power where there would be no term limits and he was rejecting it well they went on eventually after uh, the cessation of the war to offer him the presidency he was reluctant but he finally accepted it and he served for one term as president and then they begged him to serve a second term and he turned it down. And he said, let someone else take over. I'm going back to the farm. Amazing, when you think about it. I mean, he had that position, 
and respect. And his, not only the officers, but his fellow countrymen would have said, he deserves it. He said, no, I want to serve this country. And then step down to do so. And because of that, we exalt him and we honor him as the father of this country. That's a micro-illustration of what Christ has done, who existed for all of eternity with his father in that tri-unity as God and came among us to give his life on that cross. That's what serving is all about. And when the gospel captures our hearts, we can do that. Serve joyfully no matter our situation. Think of ourselves less and more of others. And see serving not as some kind of an opportunity we have to begrudgingly accept, but an opportunity. He wants us to become servants, folks. He invites us to become servants as a way of life. Yes, in our daily lives, but I want to suggest one other way this morning before I close, and that's this. Starting next weekend, we're going to have tables on our lanai, ministry tables. There will be different ones every week, and there will be featuring all the different ministries that we have in our church that uh, maybe focus on some facet of ministry here or out into the community. Well, so many of you are already involved in some form of ministry, but I ask you to pray. And say, am I in the right ministry? Or is the Lord calling me to step out of that ministry into another one where I can serve more effectively? Uh, pray about that. And over the next several weeks, look at those various ministry tables. Talk to the folks out there and pray about it. Some of you haven't stepped into a ministry for one reason or another. I really challenge you to do so. You'll find joy in serving in community with others and you'll see fruit from your life in that. And you'll be blessed, but others will be touched for the sake of the gospel. So I challenge you to step into one of those areas of service, one of those ministry teams in coming weeks. That's the model that has been set for us by Christ and the invitation that he gives to every one of us. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I pray that the gospel, the good news of your coming into this fallen world will captivate our hearts and compel us to serve joyfully in every circumstance, in every situation, knowing that every thought, every word, every act of service for others around us will redound and echo down through the halls of eternity. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.